We're going to be reading from uh, verse 13 through to the end of chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. The words of Jesus, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, I know you're all dying to bust out and sing the wise man build his house upon the rock, but maybe you can do that later after we've unpacked it together. Um, I don't know whether you're aware. You're probably, you're probably not. It's not the kind of thing that's obvious unless you're, you're kind of uh, um, around those who are putting it together. But uh, we, for a few years now, we've had a small group of people who are called our magnification leadership team who work on the area of magnification in our church life and that's mainly around our gatherings and how we do them and how they work and how they're structured and what they're focused on and all that sort of stuff and so our magnification team have kind of formed what you might call a mm, a loose liturgy that we kind of follow I know Baptists don't have liturgy so perhaps I shouldn't have used that word but it is a liturgy nonetheless and so it's it kind of goes like this we begin our service with what we call Christ orientating truths That is, we want to put some truths in front of one another that orientate our minds and hearts, which, if you're anything like mine, are all over the place often and need orientation when we gather like this, orientate our hearts and minds to the wonders of Christ in some way as we gather to worship him and sing his praise. 
Then we have a community section, which is fairly obvious. It's kind of where we get announcements and updates on things that are happening around the life of the church and so on. Uh, we might have dedications and other things around there, prayer and so on. Then we have a, a section where we're kind of, we call it preparing for the word. Then we have hearing the word, which is now. And then we have at the end, responding to the word. We want to think about how we can help each other respond to God having spoken to us through his word. And so that might be in moments of silence, uh, maybe in communion as we respond to what God has said. It might be a song, prayer, any number of those things or some of them all together. Why do we do that though? Why do we want to be so intentional about the way we structure our services and particularly that end bit, responding to the word? Why do we want to do that? Well, we want to do that because the Bible tells us to do that. James 1.22 says, be, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, that's a bit stark, isn't it? So it's possible for us to hear the word of God and to not respond to it in any way, shape or form. And that actually means we're self-deceived about what God has said. So we we actually want to do whatever we can. And and obviously there's the spirit of God at work and all of those things and God at work among his people. and We believe all that. But we want to do whatever we can to help each other respond to the word of God and think about how to do it rather than just hear it and so minimise self-deception, if you like, uh, if possible. So we shape our gatherings with a focus on responding to the Word of God. Also, as we go through the Word, we're looking at application and how it applies to our lives and so on. Now, as we continue today in Matthew's Gospel, we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. The very words of God proclaimed by Jesus, the Son of God. And the section that we just read is all about responding to the word of God spoken by Jesus. Notice verse 24 again. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's all about hearing and responding to the words of Jesus. And I want, us, I want you to see that Jesus is calling us, calling you and calling me to do just that, to respond to what he has said in his sermon. So how should we respond to the word of God spoken by Jesus, the Son of God, to the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived? Well, three ways. Firstly, we respond by coming to Jesus to find true life in him. You see that there in verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, it doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? There are two ways and two destinations. There's a narrow gate which leads to life. And there is a wide gate leading to destruction. The wide gate, notice, friends, is easy. It's easy. It's the way of comfort. It's the way of convenience. 
it won't disrupt you much, the wide gate. It won't get in the way of pretty much you doing anything you want to do in this life. It won't prevent you from living life shaped completely and driven completely by your desires and pleasures. You know, you can even throw in a bit of religion with it if you like. You know, the odd, you know, turning up at church, you can do that. Maybe the odd prayer even when you're desperate enough. But Jesus is clear about the wide way, isn't he? He's clear about its destination. What's its destination? Its destination is destruction. What does he mean by that? Well, he means separation from God for eternity in hell. That's what he means by destruction. Which is why he's saying, enter by the narrow gate. He doesn't want you or I to go there or to end up there. So he says, enter. Not by the wide gate, but by the narrow gate. Make sure, he's saying, make sure you respond to my words. Don't be a hearer only. Enter by the narrow way. It's not that easy. It's not the easy way. It's not the way of comfort. It will completely disrupt your life, in fact, in a good way. Your life will have kingdom priorities instead of whatever priorities you might have had previously. It won't be a life of worldly desires and pleasures. But seeking first God's kingdom and giving thanks to him for everything he has given you to enjoy in this life rather than trying to find life in those things. And its destination, it leads to life. It leads to life. Life now and life in eternity with God. So the question is, as he says to us, enter by the narrow way or the narrow gate, is what is it? If I need to enter this gate that's narrow, I need to know what it is. And I need to know what Jesus means when he says it's hard this way. Well, to answer those questions, we've kind of got to have a quick look at the sermon itself and especially who is preaching it and what he's all about. Matthew 4.17 is kind of where it all got started. There's this transition that happens in Matthew's Gospel where it transitions from John the Baptist, who is the uh, herald about Jesus, to Jesus himself as he begins his ministry. And And we're told that from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near, so turn from running your own life, turn from your own self-rule and repent and submit yourself to this king. Now, without going over the whole book of Matthew, Jesus is uh, clearly, according to Matthew, God's promised Messiah, God's promised king, the one who comes to save sinners, the one who has come to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth in a new way, the one through whom people actually enter the kingdom of heaven. You might remember these words from Jesus in uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the door. I think the NIV actually says, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's the same idea, right? This way leads to life. Anyone who comes through Jesus into the kingdom of heaven will go in and out and find pasture. But do you see where it starts? 
It starts by hearing the words of Jesus and responding to the words of Jesus. It starts by responding in repentance in the presence of Jesus the King, which is not easy, friends. It's not easy to repent. It's not comfortable, in fact, to repent. It's incredibly good. But it's not comfortable and it's not often convenient. But according to Jesus, it's step one, if you like, to entering the kingdom of heaven. Step one. It's the narrow gate. It's hard because for people like us, who are by nature rebellious, it requires a miracle for you and I to repent. A miracle of God's grace. In fact, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that repentance itself is a gift from God. A good gift. It means turning away from our own way, our own understanding, our own self-rule and turning to Jesus. This is the narrow gate which leads to life. And it doesn't start there, stop there with repentance and belief right at the beginning when you turn to Jesus and trust in him. It sets in motion a whole life of him changing you and growing you until you stand before him. It includes being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin and the effects of sin in God's good world. That's not easy. Certainly not comfortable. It means having God expose the very contours of your heart when Jesus says things like, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say when a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. It includes that. That's not that comfortable, is it? It includes having our hearts exposed when Jesus says things like, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say if someone says to his brother, Raka, and he's angry with him, he's already murdered him in his heart. So this narrow way, this, this hard way, includes God working on us deep within at that level. It includes loving those who hate you because God has loved you, though you opposed him. It includes treasuring God above all things and serving him first. It includes knowing and relying on God as your heavenly father. And all of these realities is why Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. It's only possible through the saving work of Jesus in our lives. Which is why Jesus says it's hard and only a few Find it. Now, just an aside here, when he says a few, sometimes we can think, oh, does that mean that there won't be many people saved by Jesus ultimately? Well, no, I don't think so, because Revelation 7 says this. The Apostle John had a vision of all the saved around the throne, and this is what he says. And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with Palm branches in their hands. What does Jesus mean here? 
But what he's doing is he's urging you and urging me to enter by the narrow way because there are many who won't. And he doesn't want us to be among them. That's what it means to enter by the narrow way. And Jesus makes it really clear it leads to life. So the first way we respond to Jesus, who brings us the very words of God, is by coming to him to find true life in him. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that behind me, on the centre part of our stage, we have this cross. We've had it there for a few years. Uh, It was one of those, um, I don't know, verge collection bonuses, really, green waste bonuses. Someone had cut down this big tree, and I saw it on the side of the road, and I'm like, wow, that's exactly what we've been looking for. And I rang Lars, and we chatted about it, and I took it over there, and he did some work on it, and then we hung it up, and it's been there ever since. It's a rugged-looking cross. And we have it, at the, you know, we thought about where, where could we put it. Well, we could put it over there, or, you know, I don't know, maybe we could, I don't know where else we could put it, but we chose to put it there, and for good reason. Because the cross of Jesus is the centerpiece of Christianity. It's the foundation of our relationship with God. And the cross of Jesus is what is to shape our lives. What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Oh, again, that doesn't sound easy or comfortable, does it? But he says if anybody loses their life for my sake in the gospel, they will find it. The narrow way leads to life. One song puts it this way. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Is the cross that for you today? Is Jesus and his death and resurrection that central for you today? Have you actually entered by the narrow gate? Are you on the narrow way that leads to life? Or you're on the wide way that's headed for destruction. As Jesus wraps up his Sermon on the Mount, he's calling us away from the wide way and pleading with us to enter by the narrow way, to come to him and find life in him. Will you be a doer of of his word and not just a hearer even today? First way is by coming to Jesus to find life in him. The second way to respond to his words is by coming to him to be shepherded by him. We see that in verse 15 and following. Now he gives us another kind of warning, doesn't he? He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, and in, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? Rhetorical question, no. Can a good tree bear bad fruit? No. Can a bad tree bear good fruit? No. Obvious answers. Jesus is warning us here. And he's warning us of two kinds of deceptions. The first is demonic deception. And the second is religious or self-deception. So let's take the first one. He's warning us of demonic deception in the form of false prophets. And notice what he says about them. 
He says, firstly, that at first glance, they're not that easy to spot. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They are found among the people of God and they even look like one of them. But Jesus is clear. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. They are a danger to the people of God and especially to those who are vulnerable among the people of God. How do you spot them? If they're not that easily seen then, how can you be aware or alert concerning them? Well, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits, by their character, and by their influence. And again, especially to vulnerable people. By their character, there's no fruit. There's no good fruit in their lives. There's no grace in them. The fruit of the Spirit is not present in them. They are actually vicious if they can be, especially if they think they won't be exposed. They can keep the facade going, looking like one of God's sheep. They actually care nothing for the flock and they are happy to sacrifice the flock on their agenda. This is their character. They come in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. So their character, firstly, their influence, secondly, they actually lead people astray. This is how you can tell there's a false prophet. They lead people astray from the true Jesus to another Jesus. A more convenient Jesus. A Jesus who's going to fit in with them. And they often do it with the Bible. They use the Bible to do so, twisting it to justify their own actions and to suit their purpose. Have a listen to what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. It was the last time he was going to see them before he was imprisoned in Rome. And so he has this kind of short meeting with them on the way to Rome and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, to all the sheep in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained or purchased with his own blood. There's the people of God, precious to Jesus, the chief shepherd. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, here they go, speaking twisted things. To do what? To draw away followers after themselves. This is why I say this is demonic deception. But notice it doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus. It doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus and he is very, very clear about their end. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There will come a day when false prophets meet the chief shepherd and experience his justice. That's the first deception. Then the second one, 
religious or self-deception. Do you see it there in verse 21 and following? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Did we not do something else in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. (laughs) Again, the frightening thing, it's probably one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible, that one. The frightening thing is is they are actually, again, among the church. Actually active in the church, serving in the church. And almost it sounds like they've been involved in some sort of supernatural ministry as well, casting out demons and doing mighty works, maybe healing, I don't know. But Jesus is clear that on the day of judgment, these people won't enter because they were self-deceived about what it meant to be Christian. Notice verse 21 again. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or workers of iniquity. Notice, friends, Jesus describes Christianity as doing the will of the Father on the one hand and knowing Jesus personally and being made new by him powerfully on the other. So again, it'd be good to know what is the will of the Father that we need to do if we're going to be among those who enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, John helps us out. Jesus says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is it to do the will of the Father? It is to see the wonder of Jesus Christ and to put your faith and trust in him and submit your life to him. And when that happens, you have eternal life and your future is secured. He says something similar uh, in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Jesus tells us that Christianity is about seeing who he is, putting our trust in him and knowing him and being known by him. He's clear, isn't he? Will you respond to the words of Jesus today? He's warning us of satanic deception and religious self-deception. Why? For our good. He's seeking to lead us. He's seeking to protect us. He's seeking to shepherd us away from danger. Uh, Surprise, surprise, he himself says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So we come to him seeking to be shepherded by him. Now many of you know I grew up on a farm and one of the things I used to love doing as part of farm work, was feeding the sheep. Now, these guys look like they're being fed because they're in the midst of a drought. Uh, And so this is what farmers do, just to make sure their flock doesn't start to kind of suffer. Um, We used to feed them regardless. We went when it was 
good, good time as well because we were in merino breeding and so they used to get all sorts of minerals. They probably got a better diet than we did. Um, and um, yeah, so we used to go out and feed them often. And I, I still remember that, you know, you just get in the gate. You're just hardly in the gate. And they, wherever they are in the paddock, you know, 300 sheep or whatever, they just start come running. Um, and you know, normally sheep are frightened, right? Normally sheep are easily startled. But they just come running and they kind of you know, spill over around each other as the, as the feed goes out in this one big line and they're all kind of just going like that. I used to love it as a kid watching them do it. And why did they do it? Well, because they knew very clearly what was good for them. And they knew that that ute meant the bloke who's providing the care and the provision and the, the sustenance to them. And so they come running because they want to be cared for and they want to be provided for. I wonder if we're like that with the Lord Jesus. Do we see him as the good shepherd who lays down his life for us? Do we come to him to be shepherded by him? Convinced, friends, convinced. And you'll only do it if you're convinced that he knows what is best for us. And do we take his warning seriously as he seeks to shepherd us away from danger? And do we welcome his word knowing that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? Think about it for a minute. What a blessing to have Jesus, the Son of God, as our shepherd. Don't you think? The one who's watching over you, protecting you, keeping you, sustaining you. One old hymn writer put it this way, The king of love my shepherd is. His goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. We respond to him by coming to him, to be shepherded by him. And lastly, back to the song we all want to sing, we come to Jesus building our lives upon him. Jesus wraps up his sermon and again, notice he contrasts two responses to his word and two outcomes. Perhaps we know this parable really, really well, but the question we're being asked today is not do you know this parable, but are you applying this parable? Are you applying it? Which builder in this story best describes your life and your current, right here, right now, response to Jesus and to his words. Because the two different responses are really clear, aren't they? One hears and does. One hears and doesn't. It's that picture in James again. And the results of those responses are also clear. When the storm comes and the rains hit, I think that's a reference to the last day again. That house built on the words of Jesus and on the person of Jesus stands. But the one who just hears and doesn't take it to heart, doesn't take Jesus to heart, falls and Jesus is... At, at pains to say, and great was that fall. In other words, 
it literally comes crashing down. What determines the difference? Our ongoing response to Jesus himself and to his word. Just an interesting thing you may not notice. If, if you've seen, do you see how Jesus uses the contrast between wise and foolish? It's quite interesting because it's not probably what we think necessarily. Wise doesn't mean smart and foolish doesn't mean dumb. Okay? In the Bible, wisdom is about living in harmony with ultimate reality and is always intimately related to belief. Foolishness, on the other hand, is living in conflict with ultimate reality and living in unbelief. Maybe you know this psalm. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see it there? Foolishness equals unbelief. Wisdom equals faith or belief. Now, the wise person is someone who believes in Jesus and builds their life on him. The foolish person is someone who either overtly or just by their lack of response shows they don't really believe in Jesus and so their life is not secure. Jesus is calling us away from unbelief or biblical foolishness to live wisely. And so again, we're back at James 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Build your house upon the person of Jesus and upon his words. And no matter what happens, your house will stand. Your life will stand. How do we respond to this sermon? Well, wisely, not foolishly, with faith, with belief, with trust. So again, as we finish, what are we building our lives on? Man, it's so easy to start building it on sand, isn't it? To start pinning your hopes in all sorts of other places that will only let you down. Relationships, career, finances, I don't know, education, any number of things you can start to build your life on. Feelings. Jesus says, no, build your life on me. Build your life on me and on on my word. How well will it stand on the final day? Well, the life built on him will stand. I want to ask you this morning, will you come to Jesus seeking to build your life upon him? Maybe you're not doing that. Maybe you're the, the person who hears that doesn't do. And you've kind of somehow tricked yourself into thinking that's the same or that's okay or that's, going to be an, that's, that's sufficient. Jesus is clear, it's not. That's foolishness. Maybe it's time to go, you know what? Actually, I, do, I need to take Jesus more seriously today. I need to take his word more seriously. I need to trust him with my life that he knows best. And I need to joyfully do that because he's the good shepherd who protects me and cares for me and who, through coming to him, I will have life. If that's you already, I want to urge you today to praise him. 
for who he is and what he said. Praise him that he's able to make you stand on that day. Isn't that astonishing when sometimes we don't even think we can stand for today? And he's going he's to make sure we stand on that day and every day on the way to that day. How awesome is that going to be when you meet God and you can stand because of Jesus? Maybe we'll finish here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Or I think another version says falling and to present you blameless <laughs> before the presence of his glory. And not like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm here. You know, what does it say? With great joy. Really? Can I step into that? Yeah, you can because of the next verse. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen? Amen. Well, we come to the part where we've been responding to the words of Jesus in this sermon and now we're going to respond. So why don't you take a minute of quietness and maybe talk to Jesus yourself. Maybe about what step you're going to take. And it could be the first step. It could be the beginning step to come to him to find life in him. Stop trying to find it everywhere else. Yeah, it promises lots of life, I know. I've been there. It still promises me lots of life, but never delivers. Only Jesus gives life, true life. Maybe it's the first step. Maybe it's another step. Let's respond just in quietness and then we'll sing as we continue to respond.